How do you respond when somebody tells you something that you don't want to hear? What do you do when you don't agree with what they with what they say? Do you genuinely consider and and examine it yourself to see if it if it could be true or or you do do you question the person the message or or excuse it away? Well, I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark in the 11th chapter, because today we're going to see how the temple rulers responded whenever they were confronted with Christ's authority. And the lesson is going to help you, and it's going to help me, to see if, if you truly submit to, to God's authority, or if you just give it lip service. And it will give you some lessons and help you to test your heart to see if you genuinely consider it or... Or maybe if you excuse it away. The lesson actually comes from an exchange while the Lord was teaching in the temple. I think you know in the beginning of the week, the Lord enters Jerusalem as the, as the Messianic king. He is the son of David, revealed by this, this blind man who's named Bartimaeus. And the son of David comes into Jerusalem and he fulfills exactly what Zechariah 9.9 says. He does it on purpose. He, he shuns this type of fame in the past, and now he initiates the confrontation that will end this week with, with him dying on the cross, just at the perfect time, just in the perfect way, just exactly as God predetermined that it would happen. The Lord Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life. No man took it from him. He willingly lays it down. And so he enters as the Messianic king. And we saw in Mark, he rides into the temple and he inspects it. it the temple itself falls under divine scrutiny. And we also saw that he doesn't like what he sees. The next day he returns to the temple and he begins to assert his authority over it. Kingly authority. The authority of God. With absolute force. He shuts down the perverted and profane worship that's taking place there. He turns over the money changers' tables. He drives out the merchants. He prohibits people from hanging around and crossing through the, the temple edifice. And then that night he leaves and goes back to Bethany. And, and that day, when all this is happening, the rulers of the temple, they're stunned. I mean, they're, they're absolutely stunned to silence, both in fear and also not knowing what to do. Not one of the gospel writers records the chief priests or the rulers attempting to stop him or say a word while it's happening. I mean, if you just think about it, think of if someone came into this service this morning that, that is not part of Timberlake Baptist Church and they just started directing things. They came up here, took the pulpit from me, and then just started teaching. You know, move out of the way, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to preach this morning. Imagine. The, what, what would happen? I mean, we might be stunned to silence for a moment, like, what is going on? Hopefully the security team would be all over them. But then at that point, it would be like, wait a minute. You're not getting my pulpit. This is the Lord's pulpit. You don't even belong here. And yet they didn't do that. And on the following day, Jesus returns to the temple after the, the attack on the temple, and he begins teaching on the actual Temple Mount itself, specifically under the portico of, of Solomon. So it's the following day, and Jesus, as the Messiah, is operating with absolute religious authority, as he should have, because he's God. It's his temple. It's not their temple. 
And this really, really infuriated the, the temple leaders. Not only because it weakened their authority, but because he never asked them. He never asked them. And just as a side note, it's a telltale sign of something that, that might be off in your heart. If you find yourself always offended or getting offended when someone didn't bother to ask your opinion, when very clearly they needed it, you, you probably have a problem, right? Jesus didn't need their, didn't their, need their permission. He didn't need to consult with them. He was the Lord of the temple. They were His servants. At least they should have been. There's not a single instance in the Gospels where Jesus asked permission of the religious authorities to do anything. Not when He began His ministry in Galilee that was initiated with His baptism. He, he doesn't seek the, the, the approval of the Sanhedrin or, or even the synagogue in Galilee. He just starts preaching. And He, he doesn't do that now. He didn't need to. He was God. He, he doesn't need to ask our permission to do anything either. This, in their minds, was unacceptable. It was, a, it was a blow to their ego. It was an attack on their system because in, in apostate Judaism of Jesus' day, it was works-based. It was rooted in pride. It was rooted in a hierarchy. And there was a ladder to climb. There's a pecking order. And you have to get permission from somebody else to, you know, to, to do this or to do that. I mean, it makes the, 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 our U.S. government uh, you know, look easy. And that kept the people in the system, and it fueled the system. It's always been that way. It was a apostate religion, Catholicism, or, or any other forms. They, that's why they don't center their worship on the Bible and, or, or give any direct access. They deny direct access of a believer to, to God. They, and I want you to have a Bible because you might actually read it and realize that there's one mediator between God and man. And it's not the priest or it's not the, the rulers of the temple. It's not even the pastor. It's Jesus Christ. He's the mediator. And so when Jesus exerts His authority over the temple and doesn't bother to even acknowledge the rulers, they are, they are incensed. And while they didn't say anything about it before, they, they can't hold their tongues today. And they ask Jesus, they confront Jesus, and they ask Him two questions. By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? They ask about the Lord's authority. His exousia. The word is repeated over and over in the passage. That's the key word, authority. Five times it's mentioned or applied in, uh, implied, I should say, between verse 27 and 33. Just a very small passage. Authority, authority, authority. By what authority? And the Bible uses two words. It relates to that. There's, there's dunamis, which means power. And then there's exousia, which means right or, or authority. Power is the ability. Authority is the is the right. Power is what an 18-wheeler has bearing down on a police officer standing in at a, at, a, at a roadway with his hand up. The 18-wheeler has the power, but the authority is in the badge of the police officer, and so the power yields to the authority. That's the difference. And Jesus Christ is both the badge and the tractor-trailer, isn't He? He has the authority... And he also has the power. He has invincible power and matchless authority, and he even exercises 
that authority yesterday, and as we'll see in our passage today, He does it this morning. He does it through His Word. And if you'll yield to it, then He works. He can do great things in your life. If you refuse to yield to His authority, then He brings His power. And that power that I'm speaking of is judgment. And you don't want to do that. You want to yield to His authority. Well, let's learn today from the the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, what is the unquestionable outcome when we oppose God's authority. That's how I would outline this passage. The unquestionable outcome when men oppose God's authority. That's the theme. When men oppose God's authority, they question God's authority. And there's an outcome. And it's not just the outcome that you see today in our passage. It's the outcome that will happen in your life. And the passage unfolds very simply in in three points. There's a challenging confrontation. They confront Jesus. They challenge His authority in verses 27 through 28. Then there's a probing response that the Lord gives in verses 29 through 32. And then there's a concluding answer in verse 33. Let's look at the first one, this challenging confrontation about authority. Look, if you would, at verse 27. It says, They came into Jerusalem. That's Jesus and the disciples. And He, that's Jesus, was walking in the temple. He was was moving about in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Him. The other Gospel writers tells us He's under one of the porticos. Mark tells us that he's walking around. Matthew says he's teaching. Luke says he's preaching the gospel. And so here's the picture. Jesus is roaming freely about the temple as the Lord of the temple. And he is teaching and he's preaching the gospel and he's moving around. The disciples are with him. A crowd is there. And this is a beautiful picture. The temple is clean from the day before. After years of self-righteous, work-based teaching from the corrupt leaders of the temple... And for one day, for this day, and tomorrow, the gospel is preached and the glory of God reigns over the temple. The Lord of the temple is moving in the midst of His temple, preaching and teaching. He's walking freely, calling Israel to repentance one more time, telling them the Lord is merciful and a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, Exodus 34. This is Jesus' final time these next two days to teach publicly. And on Friday, the Bible says He opens not His mouth. There's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. And now is the time to teach the gospel one final time in the temple after He cleanses it. And the Lord Himself is teaching. Can you imagine what that would have been like. And the rulers come and ask, who gave you permission to teach and preach the gospel in the temple, God? And that's basically what they ask. They don't believe it's God. Verse 27 says that they came to Him. Luke says they confronted Him. It's it's they arrested Him. They came upon Him. They seized upon Him. And they began to ask Him questions. He's teaching And they ask these two questions. 
Tell us by what authority. But what authority are you doing these things? Now, that's a tie from, from the day before. Not just these things, teaching and preaching, but what he did yesterday. Who gave you the right to do that? It's the temple attack. He'd forcefully, publicly devastated their, their religious establishment, and now he was preaching. He's teaching in their midst. He's got the following, and they don't. This is not a friendly exchange, if you can't figure that out. I mean, they're not saying, you know, Lord, I've really been struggling with this. I've read my Bible. I read my Old Testament. I mean, I went to synagogue, unfurled the scroll, and I've just really got this theological question. Could you help me with that? That's not what's going on here. It's a confrontation. This is an official delegation. It's not the first time that this has happened. You remember they sent an official delegation to Galilee to evaluate by what power Jesus was accomplishing the miracles. I mean, they couldn't deny the miracles in Galilee. I mean, the guy that was, that was born this way was right there with them, and his parents were there. Yeah, this is not a fake. I mean, nobody denied the power, so when they couldn't deny the power, they, they explained the power away by saying he did it by, the, by Beelzebub. It was the devil that was giving him the ability to do these things. And here's another official delegation. Now, this time not about the power, this time about the authority. But what authority? The three groups mentioned make up the Sanhedrin. It's the chief priests, it tells us, the scribes and the elders. The chief priests were a group that consisted of the present ruling high priest, the, the former high priest, and other dignitaries from whom the, the next high priest would be selected. This is like the Pope, the former Pope, and all of his cardinals. Who is going to be selected next? They're, they're part of the, the delegation. The scribes, it says, the second group, were mostly Pharisees who, whose task was to study, to interpret, and teach the law. And then there were the elders. These were the town leaders. They, they may not have been part of the religious class. They were the, they were the rulers. He's confronted by the religious, legal, and executive authorities of Israel, which were effectively the ruling body of the temple. And they seize upon him as he, the Lord, is preaching and teaching. It's the same ones that approved the commercial setup that Jesus tore down the, the day before. And they ask him, by what authority do you have to do that? We set this up. As I said, it's the same group that sent the delegation to Galilee. What is almost, what's more important, I think, than, than the makeup of the group is, is the dissension in the group. They made up the Sanhedrin, but, but this group doesn't agree on anything theologically. I mean, the point is, they're all three there as a delegation because they have, the, they have the perceived authority and they're questioning the Lord's authority, but they don't, agree on, they don't agree on anything. They argue over the resurrection. They argue over other theological points. They wrangle over who's in charge of the temple. You remember I told you one group had the, uh, had the sale of animals set up on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and, and the pilgrims would bring them there. And then Caiaphas wants a cut, so he sets up his own deal in the midst of the, of the Temple Mount, which is what Jesus overturns. And, and, and they're always arguing. And yet here, they all agree on one thing. They want Jesus dead. 
They all agree on the rejection of Jesus' authority. They can't agree amongst themselves or anything else, but they, one thing that they do agree is they're against Christ. They're anti-Christ. And if you look in the world today, you will find false religions all over the world, atheists, whoever, they will disagree on about every point imaginable, but the one thing that they'll agree on is the rejection of Jesus Christ. And the one thing that you and I do agree on is the authority of Jesus Christ if we're a Christian. Look if you would at verse 28. It says, And they began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? They walk up. They interrupt God himself teaching, preaching the gospel as they have been covering the gospel. They've been a blind spot rather than the light that they're supposed to be. They've even set up their system in the court of the Gentiles where evangelism is supposed to take place. They interrupt the one, God Himself, preaching the good news, and they ask Him these two questions. One is designed to discredit Him, and the other is designed to condemn Him. They have no intent whatsoever of believing. There was twofold purpose. There's a twofold purpose of these questions. They questioned his authority to embarrass him. By what authority are you doing these things? By what authority? They're in effect saying, show us your credentials. Here is the official delegation of Israel. Show us your authorities. May I see your ordination papers, please, before we listen to your sermon. That's what they're saying. And Jesus has no human credentials because he needed none. And they thought he did. The Sanhedrin had developed this very sophisticated system, a restricted system, to make sure that all religious authority was centralized with them. And and no one could do anything without their consent. And Jesus had no such papers. He had had no such certification. When you think about how ridiculous that is. To them, he was a two-bit false teacher ordained, who ordained himself in their minds. Who did the power, the power that he had came from Satan, not even God. And now he's usurping even the authority of the official rulers of the temple. The temple of God, no less, in their minds. And so they ask him this question, show us your papers. And if he answers truthfully that he has no papers, he has no such delegated authority, that he would embarrass himself and, and that would discredit him before the people. Uh, you're right, I don't have him. And the people would go, what? You're not ordained, I'm out of here, right? That's, that's what they're thinking. The other option is, since he had no human ordination... He would have to say his authority came from God. I do not need your nation. My authority comes from God. And then they would, they would accuse him of blasphemy and arrest him. And that's exactly what they do. Whenever they finally get Jesus before the kangaroo court that it was, the five, the five times that he's tried. You remember what Jesus said before the, the Sanhedrin? You'll see the Son of Man sitting in the clouds of glory, and the chief priest says, what else do we need? He rips his robes, blasphemy. That's what they wanted. They're trying to do that here, but it wasn't the Lord's timing. And they thought he had him. I met people like that, haven't you? 
you, you share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, they, they ask you some question that they think really stumps God. Well, what about the pygmies in Africa? Or what about, I mean, isn't the Bible a, a, a book that's been, that's been interpreted by men over the centuries? I mean, you know, whatever, some crazy. Where did Adam get his wife to use Ken Ham's famous statement? And they ask you some question thinking that somehow that's going to excuse away the authority that's actually coming onto their life at that moment. Where do you stand with God? What are you going to do with the authority? Which is where I always bring them back. And they think somehow that that, that, that parlays, that moves the authority away. And all it does is just expose their, their nakedness. And when a man opposes God in his heart, he, he does the same thing as, as these leaders do. He questions. He begins with questioning his authority. And he has no intent of receiving the answer to the question. There's nothing wrong with questioning. You do it in a respectful way. You come to God. You read the Psalms. David questions the Lord over and over and over. But he does it in a way that, that is genuine. I really want to know the answer to this. And even whenever he's struggling, he ends up bringing, preaching the gospel to himself and bringing it back to it. They don't have any, any desire to do that. They have no intent on receiving the answer. The purpose is to discredit and to explain to explain away. I've noticed four steps that people go through. I mean, it, it's, you can see it with, these, with this group here. You can see it in, in personal life. Four steps that people go through to, to, to get into a backslidden condition or to, to walk away from the, from the Lord. They, they, the steps that they take to reject God's, uh, God's authority. They begin by, by removing the, the accountability, whatever accountability it might be in their life. They, they withdraw from friends. They stop attending church. They, they get away from whoever would be a perceived, have perceived accountability over their life. And then not long after that, they begin to tear down those authorities. Now, you know, I mean, the pastor said this, but... You know, I mean, I know the Bible says that, but, but is it possible that there could be a different interpretation? It starts simple, and then it gets bigger issues. goes to bigger issues. And then they begin to form new associations. They find new friends, new counselors, new authorities, all that agree with what, what they believe, and they tell them what they want to hear, and then in the end they claim freedom. Having removed the conscience and God's authority, then then they now do what is wrong and declare it's right. It's a process. This group is well, they're, they're at the very end. They've already removed the accountability. They've already torn down the authorities. They've already formed new associations, their own associations. They've their own group think going on. And now they're declaring freedom of their own actions. And they're declaring what is wrong right. Listen, God is not on trial. You are. I mean, he's not in heaven begging you or I to accept his authority. Oh, I hope that, that, that he or she, she believes me, as if somehow that le- legitimates, you know, God's truth. He's not on trial. His word's not on trial. It doesn't make a hill of beans whether you believe the authority of Scripture or not to make it true. You're on trial. I'm on trial. God's not on trial. And they're trying to put the Lord on trial. He's not even obligated to listen much less answer. And you're accountable and I'm accountable. 
He's the self-existent sovereign over all of life. But He's gracious. Aren't you glad He's gracious? I'm glad He's gracious. And so He exposes us that we might believe. Let's look at the second one. It's a probing response that confounds. Verse 29, Jesus answered. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now that may seem like Jesus is is being um, a hard nose, but he's not. That's a typical rabbinical custom. You answer a question with a question. And Jesus has already proven his authority. He proved his authority already by fulfilling prophecy. Uh, He's already done it twice this week. The triumphal entry, he fulfilled Zechariah, and the the temple cleansing was actually a fulfillment of uh, of prophecy. Malachi chapter 3. Listen to Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger. Talking about how the Messiah is going to come. He shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire. He is like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Malachi says that the Messiah will come and he will cleanse the temple so that the offerings will be done in righteousness. That's exactly what Jesus did the day before. He'd come into his temple, he'd purged it, and now he's performing the function that should have been there. He's teaching the law of God and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And in answering this question, with a question, he he goes a step further and practices the common rabbinical custom. Except what Jesus does is he makes their answer to his question the answer to the question that they ask him. Their decision about John the Baptist will determine their decision about him. And you see what he does here? He connects his authority to John the Baptist's authority because both of them came from the Father. That's what Jesus does. There's only two possible answers. He's from God or from, from men, and, and, and they understand that. They see that clearly. You get, a, you get to, to actually look into their minds, what they're thinking, in the next few verses. And either answer that they give exposes them. If they said God, they were guilty of unbelief because they rejected John's ministry and therefore they're compelled to acknowledge Jesus' ministry. And if they said men, then they'd lose the crowd. And fear of man, not God, was was one of their primary problems. Now get this. They march up, they interrupt the Lord's teaching, they demand an answer that they think in their minds will will dispose Jesus, and in one sentence, they're huddled together talking to themselves. The The question forces them to acknowledge that He is the Messiah or exposes what He knows they already believe. Look at what they say in verse 31. 
they began reasoning amongst themselves. The bold delegation is now trying to figure out what to say and what to do. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe? But if we say from men, and Mark lets you fill in the blank, they were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. He interprets what they were thinking for you. John was not ordained by them either. It also forces them to go on record as religious rulers. That's their role. I mean, think about it. If they were unable to to determine who was John the Baptist, the prophet, that everybody's flocking to, if they can't give an answer about John the Baptist, then they forfeited their right to discern the prophets. And they have no right to lead the nation. I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. Is this a prophet or is he not a prophet? I mean, that was their role. They see the delegation to Jesus. Is this of is this of God or is this not? Is John a prophet or is he not? And if they refuse to answer, then they abrogate their primary responsibility. And so they answer without answering. You talk about hey, this is the, these are the these are the first uh, politicians right here, right? Verse thirty-three. Answering Jesus, they said. We do not know. They refuse to answer. They knew exactly what the answer was. They just simply said, we won't decide. And people want to do the same thing whenever they're confronted with the gospel of Christ or with the truth. And you should not be under any delusion of saying, I refuse to decide or I don't want to decide, somehow is not a decision. You hear what I just said? They think they can escape God's authority by not deciding. And that won't remove your accountability whatsoever. There's no middle ground with God. The Bible says, He who believes is not condemned but he that believes not is condemned already. Why? Well, John tells us because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And again, Jesus is not on trial. You are. Will you believe or do you not believe? You're reconciled to God. God's not reconciled to you as as if you're the ruler. Your unbelief is evidence of your condemnation. That's the evidence. You believe not. The evidence, you refuse to believe. That, that's, the, that's the guilty verdict that's given. That's why you're condemned already. So not giving an answer is a condemnation in and of itself because you're, you are refusing to believe. You see, God is the initiator. He, he's the one that determines truth. We are reconciled to Him, not the other way around. We don't get to sit and weigh God out on the scales. You think about the, just how ridiculous that is. We are being weighed on His scales, and the Bible tells us that we've already been found wanting, right? But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ can get on the scale for you. (laughs) His righteousness will outweigh all of the the lack that that you have. And when a person opposes God, they, they question. They question His authority. And he graciously exposes, and if they still refuse to repent, then the possibility is no more 
Revelation. Look at the end of verse 33. This is the scariest part of the passage. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. We refuse to answer. And Jesus said to them, Neither then will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They equivocate and refuse to answer. And so Jesus says, I won't answer you. It's, it's, this is not spiteful. It's a scary. This is what happened in Galilee. You remember the point in Galilee where Jesus is freely preaching the gospel and after they declare that he's doing that by the power of Satan, he begins to speak in parables to them so they will not understand. He restricts revelation because of their unbelief. This is what he's doing here. Your unbelief is restricting your revelation. I will give you no more. He's saying if you refuse to evaluate the testimony of John and my testimony already given, which is clear, then why should I give you more truth? That makes sense, doesn't it? Refusing revelation already given is no basis to receive more. No, no, God, I don't want that revelation. Give me something else. It's also a frightening principle. You should not expect God to show you more if you refuse to obey obey what He's already given you. And we ask God for more when we refuse what He's already given. There's another place where Jesus does this. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? You know, Nicodemus comes and, and he asks the asks the question. And he tells him he must be born again, born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said, How can these things be? That's a question. And I don't think Nicodemus is in the same condition as the Pharisees here. He asks the question, How can these things be? And you remember what Jesus answered? Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? You've had revelation about being circumcised of heart. You've had revelation that you must be born again in the Old Testament. Old Testament wasn't saved by law and now you're saved by faith. It's always been by faith. It's always been through grace. You you knew that the Messiah needed to come and that you needed a new heart and you're a teacher? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen. And you do not receive our witness. I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Prior revelation gives you, receiving it gives you the ability for future revelation, more understanding. And Nicodemus was rebuked for something that he should have understand, understood, but he didn't. The religious leaders were rebuked for rejecting revelation already given and then hardening their hearts toward more. And these men failed to see the truth because they'd hardened themselves against the truth. Moments like this, um, I wish that I could just get inside your, your heads and your hearts and, and turn the light bulb on. I mean, I, I really wish that, that I could 
my frailty in communicating would, would, would just be transformed where you could just totally understand and receive. Don't think that your rejection of the gospel is harmless. Don't think that your rejection of truth is harmless. Don't think that you sitting under a sermon, under the Word of God, and not obeying that somehow is... is that you can treat flippantly, that it has no effect, that you can accept it whenever you wish. Because every time that you, you hear and you don't do, your heart hardens. And every time someone shares Christ with you, and you say not now, or you refuse to deal with it, or you entrench yourself deeper in darkness. And every time for a believer, while you're not going to be in utter darkness, your heart can get calloused. And you can go through that process that we had up on the, up on the board. And you can withdraw and you can reject and your heart gets, gets harder and harder. And that can happen until you don't even know it's happening. I mean, sin is deceptive. And that's the point. Uh, you don't know that it's happening. That's the point. You don't know that it's taking place. Which is why God preaches and why God confronts and why God says, place yourself under the Word so, so it can cut open your heart, so the seed can go in there. And yes, God sometimes has to till up the ground. And yes, sometimes God has to, to bind up the wounds. And when that happens, when a person opposes God and rejects the light that God brings him, they become harder and harder and they can get to the point where they're totally disinterested in the gospel and then they don't hear anything anymore. And when that happens, it's Romans 1. God has given you what you desired. It's Hosea 4.17. God's left you alone can become like Ephraim who joined himself to idols and God said, let him alone. Isn't that a scary thing? Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Please don't do that. You want more? Obey what you know. You want more revelation? Believe what's there. You want more of God? Do what He's commanded you to do and He'll give you more. Be faithful in the small things and, and He'll make you great. And you say, that is a scary thing. It is. But I don't want to end there. I want to end with the grace of the Lord. I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. This is after these leaders reject. They get no more revelation. Jesus dies. He raises from the dead and He launches the apostles, His disciples, 
And guess where they go? They are right back into the temple and right back into Solomon's porticos and they're doing the exact same thing as the Lord does. And they're preaching and teaching the gospel to Jews. And the church grows to the point in Acts 6 that there's a division that happens in the church, but what I want you to see is in verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. Where? In Jerusalem. And look at this. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You don't want to be in the first group of priests. You want to be in the second group of priests. And if you're here today, no matter what you've rejected in the past, the warning the Lord has for you today is don't reject again. Today is the day of salvation. You're not dead. And if you're here and there's even anything going on in your heart, that's an evidence that God is still dealing with you and He's being kind to you. And I would not advise you to turn it away. Be like the priests. Believe that the Word of God might take root in your heart. Become obedient to the Lord. Would you bow your heads?